Well, thank you, my brother. Uh, wow, what a way to start. I really appreciate that. Just a little ahead of coloring books. That's, uh, <laughs> what, a great, what a great country. <laughs> when, about 10, uh, 12 years ago, I was uh, speaking uh, at a conference in Seattle. I live in Orange County, California. It was Sunday, and I was uh, flying back home Sunday morning. And uh, while I was waiting for my flight, I got a copy of the Seattle Times, which is not a, a Christian magazine. Uh, and I made a beeline for the editorial page. And there uh, on the front page was a one and a half page editorial. Now that's a big editorial. Covered the entire front page. You flipped it over and half of the second page. It was syndicated, which meant that it was sent out to several newspapers. Now, the author uh, made a claim that shocked me. Uh, the first claim he made was that at that time, we lived in the most divided nation in American history except for the Civil War. Now, that didn't shock me. I thought that was true. And by the way, since he wrote that, we are we are in danger of fragmenting uh, as a nation. This is, this is the most divided and divisive period that I've ever seen, and I'm 70, and it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's getting out of control. Uh, in Love Your God With All Your Mind, I explain how we got here. Uh, and what happened, and it's, it's very interesting uh, to see what took place. But what really shocked me about this article was what the author said was the fundamental cause of the divisions among the American people. He said the divisions are not gender. They're not fundamentally uh, socio-economic. Uh, they're not racial. And they're not political. Now, right there, 98% of the American people are going to go, this is, this is nuts, because they would identify one or more of those as the fundamental issue that's going on dividing us. Would you, would you agree with that? The author said these are symptoms of a deeper division. The fundamental division in America is the vision of worldview. Worldview. There it was in front of God and the readership of the Seattle Times. My head exploded because I had been teaching on worldview, as many of us have for years, and I'd never seen it in a secular publication. Now, a worldview is essentially what you believe about life's most important questions, okay? It's what you believe about the most important questions of life. And so there's a gay-lesbian worldview, uh, there's a socialist worldview, there, uh, all religions are worldviews, uh, Buddhism, Christianity, Marxism is a worldview, atheism. So a worldview is just a set of uh, ideas that drive a person's life and about what they 
believe about the most important questions of life. And he said that the racial and political and the sexual and all these things are symptoms of a deeper worldview division among the American people. And I actually believe that he was right about that. And, and what we have now since he wrote that is that we're living in a time when Christianity is not only regarded as kind of a, st a stupid superstition. As someone in the Washington Times said, a politician, evangelicals are dumb, uh, uninformed, and easy to lead. Well, welcome to the family. Um, and, uh, but, but not only are we considered to be uh, ignorant and uh, out, of, out of date, but we are now considered to be immoral. The religion of Jesus and the teachings of his ethics used to be regarded as good, even though Christianity was seen as a superstition. At least the ethical teachings of Jesus were good, not anymore. The ethical teachings of Jesus are considered controlling and bigoted and intolerant. So Christianity is both stupid and immoral. That is the message our children are being taught in schools and in the universities and in movies and so on. And we're losing them. And when I conclude, I will explain why we're losing people, because a study just came out and it gave six reasons. So you might want to jot these down. But right, what I want to do, I wish I had the time to tell you how we got here. Uh, we, I just don't have time. But what I would like to do is explain where we're at uh, and, and what the fundamental issue is in culture. Uh, and it's facing the church. It might be different than what you think it is. And then I'm going to go to a couple of biblical texts to, sh to, to show you that the scriptures sort of uh, indicate this. And then I want to conclude with why we're, why we're losing people and what we need to do to, to plug the hole. So where are we? What does scripture say about this? And then what can we do uh, to clear the poll. Where, where are we today? Well, remember the author said that what we have is a struggle over worldview. Now, your average person isn't going to say, I got worldview issues. <laughs> um, your neighbor isn't going to be able to give a name to at least two of the worldviews I'm going to mention. That doesn't mean your neighbor hasn't absorbed and isn't living inside that worldview. You understand? You can absorb it and be captured by it without being able to give a name to it. So here, there are three worldviews that are fighting for the allegiance of, of people in the world of ideas. Now, the first one's Christianity, and it's still a vibrant worldview, and I'm not going to go into that for time's sake, but uh, it's, it's a gain, there is a resurgence of Christianity in my academic field, which is professional philosophy, uh, and that's been exciting. Uh, but, but I don't want to talk about that right now. Where Christianity is largely succeeding is in conservative churches and uh, in families. Uh, the second worldview, which is by far the dominant worldview 
of Europe and America and has been for, for decades. This is the dominant worldview, and it's called scientific naturalism. Scientific naturalism uh, is basically the idea that the only way you can know reality is through the hard sciences, physics, chemistry, biology. Biology teaches us that God did not create life, that it evolved through natural processes that were blind. And neuroscience teaches us that there's no soul, uh, that you are your brain. I was invited, interestingly, by a, a research scientist at the National Institute of Health to deliver a lecture there, uh, and I did this last March, to a group of about 130 uh, research scientists and neuroscientists, and I argued, number one, that when it comes to whether consciousness and the soul are, are spiritual and real, neuroscience has absolutely nothing to say on the question. <laughs> and number two, when you look at the arguments, it's obvious there's a soul and that consciousness is non-physical. Well, we had a very interesting Q&A time. But um, the, the point is that if, you're, if you hold to scientism, which virtually everybody in that audience held to, science trumps everything. The only way you can know what's real is science. And if it's not scientific, if you can't test it in the hard sciences, then you can't know it one way or the other. And you, you can believe it if you want to, but nobody can know what's right. And ultimately, ethics and religion and, and art and, and, and things that are outside the, the heart, literature, these become matters of personal feeling and opinion. And this now becomes a worldview that is aggressively hostile to Christianity. I have a book coming out uh, 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 standing against this view. Uh, this coming uh, September called Secularism, Scientism and Secularism. But we need to be equipped to do this, uh, to, to defeat this view. Now let me read to you a statement from the late William Provine, who was a biologist at Cornell University, uh, and he is a scientific naturalist. Here's what he says, and this is what your kids are getting in college. Let me summarize my views about what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. It should have been loudly and clearly. <laughs> there are no gods. There are no purposes in life. There are no goal-directed forces of any kind. There's no life after death. When I die, I'm absolutely certain I'm going to be dead. That's the end of me. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics. Well, if that's true, why was he so hot and bothered to tell us about it? I mean, if there's no right and wrong, why is he wasting his time? He ought to be at the beach. Uh, well, Cornell doesn't have a very good beach. Um, there's no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will either. You're not responsible for your behavior. You're determined by your genes and your uh, brain chemistry, and that's it. 
Now, that scientific naturalism, and that dominates the media, according to research polls, 80-some uh, percent of the media are naturalists, and it dominates the power centers that get money and funding in the universities. And it is the fundamental thing that shapes the way most Americans see the world. The third worldview is called postmodern relativism, and it's basically the idea that there is no such thing as objective reality or truth, that whatever is real to one person or group is real to them, and what's real and, and true and right and wrong to another group is real and true and right and wrong to them, and nobody's wrong because there is no reality that's real for all of us. Reality is a social construction. So there are, are this is no kidding, I think in New York City now, there are at least 32 different genders. Now, now you, you laugh at that because you have this old-fashioned view that there is an objective difference between genders in the external world. You think reality is gender, don't you? Well, according to postmodernism, there is no such thing as a real world or objective gender. And what that means is that we can construct gender any way we want to, just like we can construct football any way we want to. We can change from one to two-point conversion or back or whatever and change the kickoff rules. And there's no right and wrong answer because it's something we made up. Same with gender. There is no objective reality, no truth. All truth is relative to me and uh, to, to my group. That dominates the movie and entertainment industry, and at the university, it dominates the literature, the communication department, sociology, and uh, anthropology, and the arts. It dominates in the humanities and in the entertainment industry. I met a guy years ago, in a very, very long line at a stop and go, and we got into a discussion. It was going to be a long wait. On, I don't know how it turned to morality, but uh, we got to talking about ethics. And uh, he said, yeah, he said, I, I'm one of these guys, live and let live. You know, whatever's true for you is great. What's true for me is great for me. You have your truth, and I have my truth. And so I, I found out that this guy cared deeply about the environment. And so I said to him, I don't know if you're going to like this or not, but I have four friends, and we get together once a month, and we put 50 bucks each into a kitty at $250. We buy a 100-gallon drum of sulfuric acid, one of the guys has a boat. We drive out to Lake Paris, and we dump the acid in the lake. And what we've done is we've taken bets ahead of time as to how many fish we're going to kill, and whoever gets closest to the number that float to the surface wins the 250 minus the cost of the sulfuric acid. It is a blast. <laughs> and you could see the blood vessels coming out of this guy. I said, I'm no expert on body language, sir, but I think that what you're really indicating is that you think that what my friend and I are doing is wrong. See, you're not a relativist. You're only a relativist in areas of your life where that's convenient, like sex. But when it comes to things that you care about, all of a sudden, an absolutist comes out of the closet. 
Well, the, the three worldviews, Christianity, scientific naturalism, postmodernism. Now, listen very carefully. This, this, this is the whole ballgame of what I'm going to tell you right now. There is one thing that is at stake that the other two worldviews stand against Christianity regarding, because they both agree on something against us, and they have the power in culture. And here's what they agree on. There is no such thing as knowledge of reality outside the hard sciences. There is no such thing as knowledge of reality outside the hard sciences. Now, you have to remember this for what follows, or you'll be lost. Listen, listen, please. The issue today is not truth. It isn't truth. That's an issue. But it isn't whether or not Christianity is true. No, the issue is whether or not Christianity can be known to be true. You can go on a college campus, like I do, and I can say, I think Christianity is true, and I just have faith in it. I just believe it, and I have a deep feeling in my heart about it. And so I've made the claim that Christianity is true. Well, people yawn. I don't, there's no threat to them. If you want to think it's true, fine. Maybe it is for all we know. Who cares? But the issue is nobody can know. So even if you're right, nobody knows that you're right. <laughs> Not even you. So it's just a guess. Are you getting this? If I go to university and say, not only is Christianity true, but you can know it's true, and you're irrational if you don't believe it, that's like teeing off a golf ball in the shower. <laughs> Comes right back at you pretty quickly. All right, so, so what we have is a situation where the fundamental issue today is about knowledge, the nature and limits of knowledge. And what our culture has said is that the nature of knowledge is such that if there is such a thing, you can only get it in, in the hard sciences. You can't get it anywhere else. And so it's limited. Knowledge is limited to chemistry and physics. Now, why does this matter? Why should you waste time thinking about this? Well, number one, as we're going to see, the Bible has more to say about knowing things than it does believing them. Christianity is a knowledge religion. It's not a faith religion. In fact, faith means having confidence or trust in something that you know or have reason to believe is true. It's having confidence or trust in something that you know is true or have reason to believe is true. So for the Bible, faith is based on reason and knowledge. It isn't a blind just choosing to believe something, which you can't do anyway. Nobody can choose to believe something. I'll pay you 500 bucks if you choose to believe that Washington was not the president of the United States, that two and two is the square root of minus one, that water is uh, H50O, and that there's a pink elephant flying over my head right now. You couldn't choose to believe those things if your life depended on it. So uh, the point is that faith is based on knowledge. And, and the Bible teaches that knowledge is valuable. Secondly, knowledge gives authority. It's what gives people authority to speak and act in culture. We give dentists 
and um, realtors and um, history teachers and uh, people, the right to speak and do things in their area of expertise, which means in the area where they know something. If my dentist came up to me, and I like the guy, uh, I think my neighbor likes me better than he does because uh, he, this guy hurts me. But anyway, uh, if, I went, if he said to me, you know, we're going to work on your molars, and I, I, I've got a bunch of really deeply held beliefs about molars, I feel, and I feel very passionately about them, so much so that I've commissioned a singing group to write some kind of expressive music about molars. And I, I listen to it on the way into the office, and I express my heart about them, and I've got, great, I've got really great held beliefs about it. The guy's not getting in my mouth. If, if he says, well, but I don't know anything about them. You've got to know something about molars if you're going to get in here. So if Christianity is viewed by the public as a group of people who don't have any knowledge of anything, but a bunch of really deeply held feelings and beliefs, we will be completely ignored, and rightly so. We will be completely ignored. Now, I wanted, I wanted, that, that's where we're at today. We're in, a, we're in a struggle over knowledge because knowledge is what gives you the right to tell people what reality is. What does the Bible say about this? <clears throat> I'd like, I, I can't go into too much detail, but I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians 10. I want to take a look very quickly at a text. I, I have been engaged in spiritual warfare, and I know demons are real. I can't go into the different ways that you can know they're real, apart from biblical teaching. I think I touch on this and love your God with all your mind. But let, let's just grant that these are real beings. They really are real. And there is such a thing as spiritual warfare. This is not make-believe. It's not a nice little story the church tells. It's real. And Ephesians 6 is the best path. Don't turn to Ephesians 6. It's the best passage on spiritual warfare. But 2 Corinthians 10 is the second best, and it's never mentioned in context of spiritual warfare. You have never, probably never heard a sermon or, or a, anything on Christian radio that associates this text with spiritual warfare. It's crazy. And here it goes, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5. For though we walk in the flesh, that means we walk with human bodies, we don't war according to the, to the flesh by using spears and, uh, and that sort of thing. For our, the weapons of our warfare aren't of the flesh. They're not like that. We don't use archers and things of that sort. But they instead are divinely powerful for the destruction of what? Fortresses is what my, my says. So we're not in this area of spiritual warfare. We're not targeting demons directly, but we're targeting fortresses. Now, what in the heck is a fortress? That's explained in the next text. We are destroying speculations like the idea that homosexuality is determined by a person's genes and they're not responsible for it, like the idea that you can only believe something if you can test it with the five senses, 
like the idea that everything is relative, like the idea that it's arrogant and intolerance to claim that there's only one way to God, and so on. We are destroying speculations, you might put the word theories, and every lofty thought raised up against, no, not faith in God, but raised up against the knowledge of God. You have to understand that what we guide our lives by is our beliefs. We are at largely at the mercy of our ideas. What a person actually believes, they will most of the time act on. And what we have with, with the entertainment industry and the universities is the promulgation of a set of ideas that if they get embraced, they will make the knowledge of God impossible. Look at scientific naturalism. It says you can't know something if you can't test it in the, in, in the, with the five senses and in the, in the hard sciences. Well, there goes God. Look at postmodernism. Everything's relative. Uh, you can make up God and believe anything about her you want, or it, or them, or be an atheist. There's no right answer. Everything's relative to what you want for yourself. Do you understand? Well, these target the knowledge of God, and we are supposed to destroy speculations. How do you do that? Go out and yell? Ban books? No. You learn why you believe what you believe, and the way you destroy a speculation is to argue against it and show why it's wrong. That's how you do it. You show why pro-choice is not right. You give arguments and evidence, and folks, you can learn to do this. You don't have to be a scholar. If you get a good apologetic, I got three chapters in Love Your God With All Your Mind that give evidence as to how we know God exists, and one chapter that gives evidence as to how we know the Gospels and the New Testament documents are solid history, and Jesus rose from the dead without any faith whatsoever. You learn and memorize and write those down, and you can deal with 95% of the people you meet, and I'll take care of the other 5%. But we have got to kick our game up and know why we believe what we believe. Because spirit, that is part of spiritual warfare. That's giving answers for our faith that are rational and show that we know the things we're talking about are true. We don't just believe them. If you don't do this, you'll lose your children. I've seen it happen many, many times. And so uh, that is the essence of this particular uh, text. Now, the, the, I could go on and on. If you look at Acts 17 through 19, don't do it. But if you were to do it, this is kind of t tough telling people don't look at the Bible. But you have to remember my book was close to it. It was close to it. It was in the top ten. So with a bunch of comic books in between. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, in Acts 17 and 19, one of the things you notice is that the apostles did not preach the gospel to unbelievers. 
they argued the gospel with unbelievers. That, that means they are, they, the text constantly says that they argued and persuaded them. They were giving reasons. They weren't just preaching it. They backed it up with reasons. Just look at it yourself. You'll see I'm not making this up. Can you persuade, can you talk somebody into becoming a Christian? The answer to that is yes. I have done, I, I don't know how many, I've, I've led thousands of people to Christ, and I know for a fact I've probably witnessed one-on-one to a thousand people, and I know that by the strength of the arguments that I've persuaded, I don't know, a hundred people to come to the Lord. Now, I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid, so I'm not going to go into those situations without asking the Spirit to go with me, all right? So the Spirit, I want Him with me, but that doesn't mean I don't do my work, and the power of the evidence persuades people to become a Christian. I've seen it happen. We've got this idea that that stuff doesn't matter. It's all the Holy Spirit. Well, good luck. If you believe that, good luck to you. Good luck to you. You won't see anything happen in winning people to Christ. Uh, I don't mean to be mean. I, I just am being, being mean. All right. So, um, all right. Now, what, so what I've said is, is that we're in a situation uh, where it, th- there is a worldview struggle that is what's causing these political and racial and sexual craziness divisions in our culture. And it's a division about what we can know and what we can't know. And you can assert the truth of Christianity all you want, but as long as you don't claim that you can actually know it's true, then you can be safely dismissed and ignored and marginalized as the evangelical community has been marginalized. Now, the scriptures present a different approach. Paul says that when we engage in spiritual warfare, part of it is that we are to address the ideas that are harming knowledge of God. So that means we've got to look for those ideas in the culture, and we have to find ways to show that they're silly, they're not true, they're not reasonable, and a biblical view of these things is reasonable. Will that take work? Yeah. But we've got a body. There can be a division of labor. Some of you can take on one issue. Others can take on another issue. And so that's why this apologetic series matters. Now, I want to close, and I'll ask the worship team to come up in just a minute, but not right this minute. I want to close with a statement as to why people are leaving the church. You've heard of the Barna Research Group. Uh, They're a highly regarded pollster organization that does political polling and all kinds of polling. They did a very careful research project and polled uh, thousands of people as to why they were leaving the church and Christianity in many cases. And they discovered that there were six reasons why people are leaving the church and some are leaving Christianity. Now, are you ready for these reasons? You can look this up online. You can look it up. David Kinnaman and six reasons why people are leaving the church, but, but here are the reasons that were, were posted. Number one, the church is overprotective. It doesn't expose its members 
to the ideas of the culture. They're afraid. So they're, they're overprotective in, in exposing uh, its members and uh, to what's going on out there. We, just, we stay isolated. Number two, the church's preaching and teaching is shallow. It doesn't go into depth in anything. It's kind of thin. Three, the church is antagonistic to science and doesn't help believers know how to relate biblical teaching to scientific discoveries. So neuroscience says there's no soul? Well, what are you going to say? Well, the Bible says so. I ain't going to cut it. All right, so the, the church is antagonistic to science. Sexuality is treated simplistically. It's not treated with any level of sophistication when we talk about sexuality. The, the people who leave are wrestling with the exclusivity claim that Christianity makes, namely that Christ is the only way to God instead of a way to God. Now, that can be answered in, in 30 minutes. There's a, there's a good answer to that. But, but people are leaving because they're wrestling with that, and they don't know what to make of that. Okay? And then finally, the church is unfriendly to doubters or people who have doubts. I, I talked to one guy who abandoned the faith, and he said, I, they won't let me, I, I can't ask questions. Uh, now, <clears throat> notice that all six of those have to do with anti-intellectualism of the church. The lack of training people why they can believe what they believe has nothing to do with small groups. It has nothing to do with the strength and intimacy of worship. It has nothing to do with the things that the church today tends to emphasize, which are good. I'm not downplaying any of that, but that's not been the problem. People are leaving because they're living in a hostile culture that's putting Christianity down all the time, and they got nothing to say. They don't know what to say. They're not taught what to say, and so they're bagging it. I want to close with a story, and as the worship team comes up, uh, close with this. About two months ago, I got an email from someone I had never met who lives in Southern California, uh, and he told, the email said, Dr. Moreland, I work with uh, some atheists and with a group of Christians in their 30s that are giving up Christianity because they can't get their questions answered. Would you be willing to come to my home and have a Q&A time for a couple of hours with these people? And I said I would love to. So I went to his house and there were 25 people in a big circle. There were three or four Christians that were solid and were trying to help, uh, but there were, the rest of them were late 20s, early to mid 30s, and they were, they were giving up the faith. I had many people say, this is probably my last shot. There were maybe six or seven atheists there, and I talked to a lot of the Christians who were leaving and uh, the faith, and they said, why? And he said, they said, number one, when I express or ask a question, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm dismissed, as though that's not a proper thing for us to do, because that's unbelief. 
and so I get shunned or shamed. And secondly, if I ask a question, the answer I'm given is not, not a very good one. So I'm concluding that Christianity doesn't have any answers to questions. We had a two-hour Q&A time, nothing but Q&A, and it was so exciting to see what happened, to see what happened. Here's the lesson. You don't have to be a Ph.D. in philosophy to, to, to do this sort of thing, but what we've got to do is we have got to redouble our efforts to train people why they believe X, Y, and Z instead of teaching them the biblical view on sexuality or the resurrection. We have to explain why we can know these things are true. And uh, I urge you to continue to work on that, to read, to listen to books on tape, and learn how to defend your faith in order for the church to recapture its vibrance. Thank you. Thank you.